0: Well, it's a great pleasure uh, to be here and um, <clears throat> coming back to the Mershon Center is, is special for me because um, too many years ago, more years than i like to contemplate, it was the Mershon Center that gave me a dissertation fellowship that uh, sent me to Washington to do my first work and uh, my first real archival work and I've always felt a debt. Um, to the Mershon Center and to um, many of the mentors um, here at Ohio State who trained me. And um, one of the nice things today is to see uh, a couple of people here who were here when I was a student, um, but I also um, spent some time this morning with uh, um, one of my mentors, uh, not Marvin Sineiser but somebody else um, uh, with whom I took uh, numerous classes when I was a graduate student. Who asked me about my next project that Bob McMahon just mentioned about uh, 9 11 American foreign policy? And he said to me that he strongly disapproved that this was journalism and I really needed to do something uh, historical and really important and get back into the archives and stop thinking that I can just write something based on oral history. And I felt I was sort of back in graduate school again. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, so I kept saying, Yes, sir. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> I want to talk today um, uh, about uh, my new book, uh, For the Soul of Mankind. And um, this was a big challenge to me to take on this book and um, because I, asked, I wanted to ask myself some very big questions uh, about the Cold War. Um, and uh, so I tackled it really thinking that I would address three questions What caused the Cold War? Why did did it continue for as long as it did? And then why did it end? Obviously, I was tremendously um, influenced by the fact that the Cold War did end, something that for all the years I had been studying it, uh, I had never anticipated. And so, for me, um, asking these questions about why it lasted so long and then trying to address how and why it ended um, were formidable challenges. When I went about um, thinking about how to address this topic, I very much had in mind some of the basic uh, theories and historiographical interpretations that had emerged in the literature that spoke to the question of what caused the Cold War and how to understand the ongoing dynamics of the Cold War. And so, you know, the context in which I wrote um, was one in which I, w- I, I wanted to engage five, you know, major variables that, um, that I felt had framed a lot of the literature Uh, either in political science or international relations, and in the history of American foreign policy, about the Cold War. So I wanted to deal with um, the role of ideology that's always, uh, ever since the Cold War began, has always been an influential interpretation of the uh, causes uh, and dynamics uh, of the Cold War. And it's one that Uh, was important not only at the outset during the first couple of decades of the Cold War, uh, but also, of course, uh, for people who are studying the Cold War nowadays know that it's taken on even more importance uh, in recent years, and most conspicuously uh, in the writings, for example, of uh, O'Darney Westad, whose book uh, last year or the year before called The Global Cold War uh, won, the, uh, won the Bancroft Prize and has won many other prizes. But Westad, like you know, many recent colleagues who write about the Cold War, really have taken the issue of ideology to, uh, to new heights. And as those of you who have read West, Westad's terrific book um, uh, know that he basically sets it up with a framework that the Cold War um, was a conflict between an empire of justice, Soviet view of things, and an empire of liberty, the American framework, and that uh, much of the Cold War can be understood in terms of this ideological conflict. So that's one interpretive framework that I had in mind. A second one, of course, related to the role of the international system, more specifically, the configuration of power uh, in the international system. Um, People, uh, political scientists, international (coughs) relations scholars for decades have been talking about the fact that the Cold War was an inevitable consequence of the configuration of power that existed at the end of World War II. John Spaniards, for example, very uh, frequently used book on the history of the Cold War, which is what now in its fourteenth or fifteenth or sixteenth edition, something like that. Um, you know, talks about the importance of the uh, uh, distribution of power. In an extremely influential book, and I think a very good book, a constructed piece um, that appeared a few years ago by Mark Trachtenberg. He too, once again, sort of underscores the importance of the distribution of power and how the The configuration of power in the international system shaped the dynamics of the Cold War. So this was something that I had very much in my mind. Then, of course, uh, there's a, a very large literature that emerged at the beginning of the Cold War and, of course, has taken on even additional saliency in recent years about the role of leaders Stalin was the cause of the Cold War. John Gaddis, in some of his most recent books, say, how do we understand the, the causes of the Cold War? In one word, it's Joseph Stalin. How do we understand uh, the end of the Cold War? Well, for Ronald Reagan, it's most, I mean, for John Gaddis, it's mostly Ronald Reagan, and for quite a few other um, uh, uh, scholars, uh, say, the, you know, we can understand the end of the Cold War in terms of Ronald Reagan. The alternative is the terrific work that's being done on Mikhail Gorbachev. How do we understand the end of the Cold War? Well, we really need to understand Mikhail Gorbachev. If you read Archie Brown's book called The Gorbachev Factor, or if you read Vlad Zubach's very good new book on um, the Soviet Empire, I forget the exact title uh, uh, of the book, but it's a book about Soviet foreign policy from, uh, from Stalin to Gorbachev. Uh, just appeared. And it's a terrific book. And of course, uh, he argues at the end of the book, in a very critical assessment of Gorbachev, he nonetheless says, how do you understand the end of the Cold War? It's pretty simple. It's Mikhail Gorbachev and his unique, the unique policies uh, that he pursued. Then, of course, there's uh, a whole bunch of interpretations that focus on the role of public opinion, bureaucratic organizations, domestic political culture, Interest groups. I had these this framework in mind when I approached my topic. And then, of course, a very interesting literature, especially amongst historians, that talks about the peculiar role of allies and clients. Um, this was made famous, most famous probably, by Lundestad, the Norwegian historian, when he first wrote that famous article called Empire by Invitation, and then wrote several books that play upon this theme of how allies um, and alternatively clients often have shaped the dynamics of the Cold War and shaped the policies of the alleged hegemons. That is to say, allies frequently shape policy. And of course, this has taken on salience in terms of the literature on the Soviet Union and on the Warsaw Pact. Those of you um, who are uh, in involved in studying Soviet foreign policy have probably read a very good book by Hope Harrison, who has written, writes about the relationship between East Germany and the Soviet Union in the 1950s and early 60s and shows the huge impact that East German policies actually had on Khrushchev's foreign policy. So I had this literature uh, in mind as I tackled the larger subject of how to understand the overall dynamics of the, uh, of the Cold War. What I really wanted to do in my book and um, was to spend as much time studying or put as much emphasis studying the Soviet side and the American side of the Cold War. I wanted to give equal weight to policymaking in Moscow as well as in Washington. I felt actually that this was very necessary because although the vast amount of literature on the Cold War tends to dwell on American foreign policy, what has happened in the last 10 years is that almost all the really influential books on the Cold War have been written primarily based on the new materials emanating from Russia and Eastern Europe and to some extent China. And so I felt that it was time to uh, try to to write a book about the Cold War that did justice to both sides, uh, or at least tried to tackle policy making in both Washington and Moscow. I also wanted to write a book that explored the role of human agency and contingency in history. How important are leaders? This was um, a subject that struck me as more and more important as I reflected on some of my own work that had dealt a lot with policy making, but at the same time hadn't, in my own estimation, really engaged the role of the top leaders in a systematic way as I thought was necessary. And since so much of the new literature was focusing on the significance of great leaders, um, influential men, Gorbachev, Reagan, Khrushchev, uh, Bill Taubman's great Pulitzer Prize-winning book on, on Khrushchev, three or four fantastic new books on Stalin. Um, I felt that in this book I wanted really to sort of try to grapple with the role of human agency in relationship to some of these other factors that I've, I've just enumerated. I also wanted to illuminate a paradox that I think existed throughout the Cold War and I think really exists in the making of foreign policy all the time. And that, was, that is the sort of juxtaposition of power and fear. One of the things that struck me in reading and writing about American foreign policy was how often nations who have great power also feel incredibly fearful. And as I studied the Soviet documents on the Cold War, it struck me that oftentimes the same was true. Soviet leaders also increasingly felt great power but also possessed great anxieties. So how do you deal with this juxtaposition of fear and power? So I wanted to, to really develop a synthesis or an analysis about the Cold War that interrogated, so to speak, um, all these various interpretations, all, all, these, fa- all these factors. And, of course, anybody now working on the Cold War has a tremendous advantage and also a tremendous challenge that wasn't the case uh, 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, and that is that there's just a terrific treasure trove of new materials from Russia and Eastern Europe and China uh, that one has to deal with. And what impressed me about the new documents as I read through them. And what impressed me more and more about American archival materials was that US and Soviet leaders both truly believed they represented an alternative and superior way of organizing human existence. Arnie Westad is absolutely right when he contends in his book that Soviet leaders believed they were disseminating an empire of justice. This was not just rhetoric they used for the public, but when you look at the Politburo proceedings and other internal memorandums, you see that Soviet leaders believed they were developing a system that could generate rapid economic growth, stimulate technological innovation and provide health and education and opportunity for their own citizens much more effectively than could capitalism. Planned economies, they truly believed, were the wave of the future. This was not just rhetoric. This was sincere belief. And what was interesting to me, as I have studied American materials, was that U.S. officials also felt that they were waging a struggle over a way of life over the way to organize human existence, you might say, or at least the basic political economies that set the framework for human interaction. As Westad writes, American officials did believe in the notion of liberty. They were spreading, in their own view, an empire of liberty. And in fact, the title of my book, For the Soul of Mankind, comes from a quote from George Herbert Walker Bush, when he said in an introduction or a preface to somebody else's book, he wrote, the Cold War was a struggle for the very soul of mankind. When I first read that some eight or nine years ago, sort of took me by surprise. But I remembered it. And increasingly, as I studied my own documentation and as I started writing my own analysis, I realized that that statement... Cold War Was a Struggle for the Very Soul of Mankind, actually summed up a lot of what I wanted to write about. So one key generalization was that the new materials really showed the tremendous sense of ideological conviction uh, among policymakers on both sides. They were in a contest over a way of life. But what also impressed me tremendously in the documentation was that although they felt they were in a contest over a way of life, policymakers in Moscow and Washington frequently realized, frequently realized, that the Cold War itself was counterproductive to their own nation's interests. They realized time and time again that the Cold War rivalry diverted resources from their own domestic priorities and weakened their countries economically. They realized, both in Washington and in Moscow, that the Cold War embroiled them in conflicts on the periphery that had absolutely no relationship to vital interests. They understood this. They also recognize that the Cold War threatened nuclear war. A scenario on the peri- periphery could escalate out of control and lead to a nuclear holocaust. Officials in Moscow repeatedly recognized this fact, as well as those in Washington. Hence, what was interesting to me in the documentary record was that detente or cooperation often seemed better than cold war yet policymakers much as they talked about the need to modulate the cold war or disengage from the cold war were unable to do so for 40 years and so i realized when i thought about how to frame a book about the overall dynamics of the cold war was that you could explain the dynamic best if I took these moments or several moments in the Cold War, when policymakers recognized, so to speak, the liabilities of the Cold War dynamic, when they tried to prevent a Cold War or modulate it or disengage from it, but were unsuccessful in doing so. And if I could explain those specific moments in time, I would probably be able to... Explain the dy- dynamics of the whole Cold War. Now this has fallen off, and I have no idea how to put it back on. I got very excited about my own lectures here, so uh, <laughs> well, I hope this will work. So um, okay, so I I realized that by taking these selected moments during the Cold War, I could tackle the very int- very questions I was most interested in. What was the role of ideology and memory? What was the role of the configuration of power or the distribution of power in the international system? What was the importance of public opinion or political, domestic political culture or bureaucratic interest groups or economic interest groups? What was the role, what was the role of allies and clients? And ultimately did great leaders like Stalin and Truman or Reagan and Gorbachev really make a difference? So, I took five moments in the Cold War, short periods of time, when I could explore these issues. I took, first of all, the period 1945 to 48, looking at the origins of the Cold War. And my argument in the first chapter of my my book is that neither Stalin nor Truman wanted the type of Cold War that evolved. Neither of them did, for reasons of self-interest, national self-interest. But they were unable to avoid it. Why was that the case? Then in the second chapter of my book, I look at the period 1953-54, right after Stalin's death. I look at the role played by the Soviet leader, Malenkov, and Eisenhower. Eisenhower, as you all know, right after Stalin's death, gave a speech called A Chance for Peace. Now that the great dictator has died, there is a chance for peace. And we know now from elaborate Soviet records, fantastic Soviet records, that the new leadership in the Kremlin was actually interested, very interested, in modulating the Cold War dynamic in 1953 and 1954. But ultimately, nothing came of this. Why was that the case? Then in the third chapter of my book, I look at Kennedy, Khrushchev, and Johnson from the period right after the Cuban Missile Crisis until the buildup in Vietnam in the spring of 1965. As the Cuban Missile Crisis came to an end, Khrushchev wrote a letter to Kennedy and he said, evil has brought some good. The good is that now people have a clearer realization of the threat looming over them if the arms race is not stopped. And Khrushchev went on in a series of letters between October and April, October 62, April 63, constantly telling, telling Kennedy, we need to solve all the problems. We need to really tackle all the problems. And as many of you know, initially Kennedy wavered, was ambivalent about how to respond to these overtures, but then in May of 1963 he gave this very famous speech at American University in which he said, yes, we need to reconsider the entire Cold War dynamic. Americans need to think differently about Soviet people. We need to reconceptualize the importance of peace. And yet, within two years, nothing came of that. And then in the fourth chapter of the book, I deal with Brezhnev and Carter and their futile attempts to sustain detente after SALT One, the ABM Treaty and the Helsinki Accords. Now these are just four periods in the Cold War where policymakers tried and failed either to prevent it, modulate it, <coughs> disengage from it. Actually as other people who have read my book or who talked to me while I was writing my book constantly said why are you taking those periods? There was also this period and that period and Well, what's interesting and what's important is, yes, absolutely there were other periods. The point is you can find these efforts all through the Cold War, not only during these moments in time that that I'm focused on. My point is that by looking at them, you can capture the larger dynamics of the entire Cold War. And then ultimately in the last chapter, I look at Reagan and Gorbachev, and I try to explore, well, once again... There was an effort, but this time it succeeded. How do we explain the success this last time, whereas in the other times, there was failure? Now, my main argument in the book, after looking at these five moments in time, my main argument is that the Cold War began and lasted for four decades because leaders were beleaguered by dangers, and lured by the opportunities that lurked in the international system. The Cold War began and lasted for four decades because leaders were also trapped by their ideas, their ideals, and their memories. These beliefs and memories heightened their sense of danger. These beliefs and memories, however, also accentuated messianic impulses. So in my view, it's necessary to deal very systematically with the nature of the distribution of power in the international system, the configuration of conditions in the international system, as well, as with the role of ideology and memory. So what are the conditions in the international system that sustained the Cold War for four decades? First of all, one has to look at the economic, social, and political turmoil in Europe that existed at the end of World War II. The Cold War started in Europe because European politics and European society were up for grabs at the end of World War II. Literally up for grabs. And what I try to do in the first chapter of my book is to try to capture or illuminate the disillusionment with capitalism and democracy that existed in Europe after two world wars and a Great Depression. It was hard to sustain cooperation Indeed, ultimately impossible to sustain cooperation between the United States and the Soviet Union. When turmoil and instability throughout Europe engendered so much fear in Washington and so much opportunity in Moscow. The second aspect of the international system that's so important relates to analyzing the vacuums of power in Central Europe and Northeast Asia. Here again, as was the case with the social turmoil bequeathed by depression and war, here again, the vacuums of power were not the result of the Cold War, but these vacuums of power shaped the Cold War. Briefly stated, no one expected in 1944 and 45 and 46, no one expected the occupations of Germany and Japan to last very long. No one expected Germany to remain demilitarized, divided, weak, and submissive. Few anticipated that Germany would become democratic or peaceful. Much of the Cold War until 1975 was about dealing with the fears and opportunities that surrounded Germany's uncertain trajectory. And it was always hard to sustain Soviet-American cooperation when each suspected that the other was seeking to co-opt Germany's future power it was hard to sustain cooperation when each feared the autonomous power of a reunited Germany should that happen. The third aspect of the international system that's critical for understanding the dynamics of the Cold War and for why each of these attempts failed relates to decolonization and revolutionary nationalism in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. Decolonization was sewn into the very fabric of post-war international relations from the mid-1940s through the mid-1970s. In Moscow, revolutionary nationalism engendered enormous hopes for gains. And in Washington, it engendered constant fears and anxieties. So it was always hard to sustain cooperation when Moscow and Washington constantly believed that the other was scheming to capitalize on developments in the third world. Now conditions in the international system, the basic conditions in the international system, engendered fear and hope, danger and opportunity but the particular nature of the threats and the particular nature of the opportunities were shaped by ideology and historical memory. Consequently, a critical feature of my book is to show how ideology and memory shaped perceptions of threat and opportunity. Different ideological assumptions, different historical experiences meant that the world was understood (laughs) or to use a term that's frequently used nowadays, constructed very differently. Historical experience and ideology shaped the way in which people understood what was happening in the world and shaped the way in which they interpreted their adversaries' actions. So, for example, ideology suggested to Stalin and to his successors that capitalism would founder and that he could exploit divisions among his capitalist adversaries. Ideology suggested to Stalin and to Stalin's successors that peoples in the Third World would liberate themselves from colonial exploitation and choose socialist planning as the quick fix to modernity. Ideology suggested to Stalin and to Stalin's successors that the Soviet Union would be encircled and squeezed if it displayed any weakness at all. Likewise, ideology suggested to Truman and to Truman's successors that peoples, if given a chance, would choose free markets and individual rights. And if they did not so choose, it proved that they were not enjoying self-determination. Ideology suggested to Truman and to his successors That a free political economy at home, a free political economy at home inside the United States, required an open international marketplace. Now, in addition to ideology, historical experience and memory were equally influential in shaping perceptions of threat and of opportunity. For Soviets, the overriding memory was that of war, of Germany of German aggressiveness. The significance of this from Stalin through Gorbachev is amazing in the documentary record. The memory, the experience of German occupation. It inspired hate and a lust for revenge. It also inspired prudence, a desire to avoid another war, but at the same time it justified the domination of Eastern Europe. For Americans, the lessons of World War II were also compelling. The most important being that when totalitarian powers gain control of the resources and manpower of Europe and Asia, those totalitarian powers use those resources to wage a protracted war against the United States. U.S. officials, therefore, could never permit that possibility to happen again, either directly or indirectly. Now, in addition to looking at the international environment and at ideology and memory, I try to explain how at various times domestic politics, interest groups, bureaucracies, and institutions played a role. Domestic politics and institutions, at times, made it very hard to sustain detente even though I don't think that domestic politics or domestic political culture or institutions were one of the dominant factors shaping the Cold War dynamic. At particular times that I studied, they were extremely influential. For example, in February 1965, Johnson decided to bomb North Vietnam after an insurgent attack attack on a U.S. Marine base at Pleiku. Johnson did so when soviet premier kosygin was visiting in hanoi president johnson was warned explicitly three times at least that if he bombed when kosygin was there it would rupture the ongoing dynamic toward detente nevertheless johnson went ahead and did so And it's absolutely clear in the record that he did so primarily because he was fearful of domestic political adversaries. He feared that domestic political adversaries would capitalize on any weakness that he displayed internationally. Interestingly, he wasn't being pressured. It was in his imagination. But it was critically important because he feared that domestic political opposition would destroy the great society, not just as foreign policies. But similarly, domestic politics of different type were at play in the Kremlin. And we're getting a much better appreciation of factional politics and the role of party ideologues in the international department, for example, of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. We're getting a much better understanding of the role of the military-industrial complex inside the Soviet Union. And at critical times, Like in the mid and late 1970s, such factional politics and the role of the Soviet military-industrial complex were absolutely decisive. Brezhnev emerges as a person fully, unequivocally committed to detente. But nonetheless, he allowed party ideologues and military officers to dictate, to shape Soviet foreign policy in the mid and late 1970s regarding the Third World. We now know that Brezhnev didn't give a damn about what was happening in Angola and the Horn of Africa, for example. But he was too old and doddering to control the decision making process. So, organizational and bureaucratic politics in the Kremlin, sometimes like in this period between 74 and 78, 79, made a great deal of uh, exerted a great deal of importance to to understand the cold war dynamic i also found that you needed to look indeed at the pressures of allies and clients of the great powers at various times allies and clients felt they had a vested stake themselves in the cold war they hoped to exploit soviet-american rivalry to their own advantage they also recurrently feared that the United States and the Soviet Union might collude at their expense. So at different times, the record shows that Adenauer and De Gaulle felt this way. So did Honecker and Gomulka. So did Mao and Castro. And so did Chiang Kai-shek, Sigmund Rhee, the Shah of Iran. Allies and clients had their own agendas, and they often undercut the attempts to sustain detente. Now my fifth explanatory variable in explaining the dynamics of the Cold War relates to the leaders themselves. I try hard in my book to talk about human agency. I look at Stalin and Truman and the other leaders and I try to capture their essential traits, their beliefs, their hopes, their fears, their dreams. And even more importantly, I focus on illuminating the competing impulses to cooperate on the one hand and to compete on the other hand. I show how until the mid-1980s that although these leaders unquestionably had great power and although they often wanted to cooperate, or less intentions, they could not transcend their circumstances, overcome their ideological predilections control their allies and clients, or liberate themselves from fear of domestic humiliation. They absolutely pondered divergent options, but they made decisions each and every time that perpetuated the Cold War. But in the last chapter, I show how Reagan and Gorbachev overcame the constraints of the past. I put a lot of importance on human agency of these two men, Reagan and Gorbachev. Now of course they operated in a larger context. The international environment for all sorts of reasons in the 1980s was more permissive. The domestic political circumstances in Washington and, Washi- in Washington and Moscow made relaxation of tensions more feasible. But most of all, it was the unique qualities of Reagan and Gorbachev that led to the end of the Cold War. And I tried to show in this last chapter, by using new materials from the Reagan Library and from the Gorbachev Foundation, how leadership made a terrific difference. First of all, I reinterpret Ronald Reagan. Reagan, I acknowledge, not Reagan, I acknowledge wanted to build strength. But Reagan believed strongly that the purpose of strength was to negotiate. Both were critical. Strength for negotiation. Reagan wanted to tamp down the arms race. From the very beginning of his administration, we can now see in the Reagan records that he wanted to reach understandings with the Soviet Union. I know you're all looking at me and thinking, how could you say this, Leffler? We know that he talked about publicly about the evil empire, that he denounced Soviet leaders time and time again. And the answer is, yes, he did. But you didn't know that, for example, just a few days after he gave the evil empire speech, he would write a letter that would go something like this, privately to Soviet leaders. This one is to Chernenko. I have no greater goal than the establishment of a relationship between our two great countries characterized by constructive cooperation. We seek to defend our interests, but not to challenge your security. I want you to know that neither I nor the American people hold any offensive attentions toward you or the Soviet people. Our constant and urgent purpose must be a lasting reduction of tensions between us. I pledge to you my profound commitment to that end. And if you go to the Reagan Library, what's interesting is that you find about a dozen letters of this sort, not to Gorbachev, but to Gorbachev's predecessors, first to Brezhnev, then to Andropov, several numerous letters to Chernenko, all emphasizing this same point. And Reagan wrote in his diary, quote, In 1984, three years have taught me something surprising about the Russians. Many people at the top of the Soviet hierarchy are genuinely afraid of America. Perhaps that should not have surprised me, but it did, end quote. Reagan's willingness to negotiate, his capacity to learn from experience, was extremely important in ending the Cold War as was the confidence he inspired amongst the American people because of his rhetoric and his commitment to strength. But even more important than Reagan, in my account, was Mikhail Gorbachev, a truly extraordinary figure. He was the indispensable person in ending the Cold War. But I emphasize in my book, and I think others would agree, that ideology remained absolutely critical to Gorbachev until the end of the Cold War and until the end of the Soviet Union, for that matter. He believed, sincerely believed, he represented a superior system, but he wanted that system to work better than it had. And in order for Glasnost and Perestroika to succeed, he realized that he had to relax international tensions Gorbachev realized that he had to modulate the arms race and shift resources to domestic priorities. And in so doing, I show how he reconfigured some of his most basic ideological beliefs. He came to believe that capitalist powers were not bound to wage war against one another. They were not destined to militarism. They were not inveterately hostile to the Soviet Union. Gorbachev, most importantly, grasped that Western leaders, American leaders, Ronald Reagan, genuinely feared Soviet power. And Gorbachev realized that he needed to allay those fears in order to accomplish his domestic purposes. And to do so, he needed to take big risks to break through what we would call the security dilemma. And to do that, he was willing to make huge concessions. He did it, he made those, concession, those concessions because he genuinely believed that nobody would attack the Soviet Union. In the parlance of nuclear strategists, he believed in minimum deterrence. He liked to say, we're not surrounded by invincible armies but by superior economies. So in the larger context, what's important about Gorbachev was that for him, external threats were small. Internal threats were big. But he also believed, just as importantly, perhaps more importantly, that external opportunities were even smaller. The world had changed. The model of the Soviet Union, he well knew, was no longer appealing. The dynamics in Asia and Africa, after the end of Portuguese decolonization, the dynamics in Asia and Africa were entirely different than they had been during the first decades of the Cold War. The Soviet Union, Gorbachev realized, had to make the system work at home if it was to be emulated abroad. Now, he failed miserably in his effort to make the system work economically at home, and he failed in creating a domestic base for his leadership. But in trying to ameliorate the system at home, he actually took the indispensable steps to end the Cold War. So the Cold War ended because of changes in the international system, because of a peculiar set of domestic political conditions in both countries, and most of all, because of the evolving beliefs and leadership of Reagan and Gorbachev. I think there are three big generalizations that I'd like to leave you with. First, diplomacy matters. Negotiations were critical to the end of the Cold War. The story of the Cold War suggests that you need not only strength, but you need a strong desire to negotiate. And you need to understand not only the ambitions of your adversary, but the fears of your adversary. You need to understand that your adversary, as much as yourself, wants to negotiate from a position of strength. But you need to negotiate. Second big generalization, What mattered most in terms of the outcome of the Cold War was not military capabilities. As much as I love to study foreign policy, it wasn't even the foreign policy of either country. What mattered most in the struggle for the soul of mankind was not a great power's capacity to project force, but its capacity to offer a better way of life to its own people and to other peoples. The Kremlin seemed a formidable foe when the Great Depression and two world wars discredited liberal capitalism. The Kremlin seemed a formidable foe in the 1950s and 60s when it appeared to unlock the secrets of rapid modernization, when it appeared capable of providing educational opportunity and nurturing scientific achievement, and when it could readily discredit the West for its imperial record in the third world. But the Kremlin could not compete for the soul of mankind when the era of decolonization and revolutionary nationalism ended, as it did in the mid-1970s, and when it became apparent about the same time that the Kremlin could not make good, could not make good on its promises to offer its own people and the peoples of Eastern Europe, superior health care and housing and food, and yes, entertainment. Social democracy and consumer capitalism won the Cold War. Gorbachev's uniqueness was that he realized what was happening, and he wanted to alter the trends. Success for Gorbachev depended on democratizing socialism and making socialism work for the benefit of his people. And in this pursuit, as I said, he failed miserably, but nonetheless, in this pursuit, he ended the Cold War. Consequently, and lastly, as we ponder the importance of Gorbachev and Reagan, we should be reminded that in writing international history of the Cold War, we must integrate structure, ideology, domestic politics, and human agency. The challenge to historians is to weave a tapestry to understand the efficacy of human action against a backdrop of structure, beliefs, politics, and economics. That's what I hope to do in For the Soul of Mankind. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Let's open it up for questions, please. Big crowd. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, Bill. Would you talk a bit about the peers? You talk a lot about the peers on the very both sides. Looking back at it now, uh, how many of them, if any, were justified, would you say? How many were Well, uh, (laughs) the the, the interesting issue is how you define justified, right? Um, So, I think some of them, um, I mean, for example, John, how do you say, how, how do you determine the question of were fears in 1946 of, German, of a recrudescence of German power justified or not? Okay? How do you answer that question? No. As it turns out, no. as it turns out, no. as, as it yeah, turns it out, as in, we know how it came out, but I think that the fears of the recrudescence of German power in 1946 were totally justified. Um, anyone living in that period of time would have learned the lesson of their lifetime. Germany had been defeated after World War I, supposedly it had been demilitarized, etc., etc, no army, etc. And yet, you know, within 20 years, German power dominated all of Europe. That was the essential lesson for all contemporaries, not only the Russians, but the French, the Dutch, and even the Americans. Did Harry Truman believe that? Harry Truman absolutely <laughs> believed that yeah, about. Dr. Dr. Now. <laughs> so you're asking, whether, were these fears? Knowing what we know now. Knowing what we now know, yes, I would say that fear, since th- there are three, you know, two or three big things that caused, in terms of the international system, that led to these fears. One is the fear of German power. Was that justified? I would answer your question, yes. Second big fear in 1945 and 46, and on the other hand, second big opportunity, was the um, social chaos, political ferment, and prospects for communist parties gaining power in places like France and, and, and Italy. That was the big fear in American pol- policy making circus. Not, not a fear of Soviet military expansion, but of that. Was that fear justified? No. I would say that fear was not. It was p- entirely possible that communists in France and Italy would dominate a coalition in 1945, 46, and 47. After all, they had, you know, depending on the election and in the country, somewhere between 25 to 38% of the popular vote they often had a key role in, the, in, in coalition governments. So it was understand, the fear that communists could play a key role, perhaps a decisive role in the domestic politics of France and Italy was understandable. But what was, I think, unjustified to answer your question, was the notion that should that happen, those communist parties would simply be dictated to or manipulated easily by the Kremlin. I think that connection was probably exaggerated, although there are plenty of people who would violently disagree with what I just said and say that, you know, the French communists were still controlled by Stalin and the Italian communists in 1947 and 48 still controlled. And there's a lot of literature that suggests that. But I think that if they had domestic power, they probably would have exercised Uh, A a sense of responsibility to domestic constituency. So I I would answer that question uh, with regard to that to say no, it was exaggerated. Um, The third big preoccupation, um, fear, was engendered by the revolutionary nationalism in the third world. Um, American officials in the 1950s and 60s lived in enormous fear of the consequences of, of revolutionary nationalism. I think that, and the Soviets thought they had huge opportunities. Um, both sides had it. and for both, their perceptions were wrong. Um, so in that sense, um, th- I would answer your question. No, they were not justified based on what we now know, but understandable in the context of their times. Yes, sure. so of course, as down. So, How much How derived the field itself, Yeah, um. I think as I've studied this question because I think it's a you know it's a vital question to understanding the, the the history of international relations during this period and actually at any other time and in in my view, it usually was a reinforcing factor so um yes, you're absolutely right, John Kennedy used that record that rhetoric in the election of nineteen sixty but does the record also show? That Kennedy was extraordinarily fearful of revolutionary nationalism in the third world? Does it, does it show that Kennedy was extremely worried about Khrushchev's capacity to exploit revolutionary nationalism? The record is abundantly clear about that. He was incredibly preoccupied with that. Um, now, at various times, you know, he was think, you know, he wanted to modulate. Re- relations, as I showed, too. For example, the best, things, uh, the best example is the test ban treaty. Um, and in that case, I mean, Kennedy absolutely believed the test ban treaty made sense and you know, was inclined to enter into it with many less inspection provisions, et cetera, et cetera. But he felt that in order to, do, to get away with it, in order to get it ratified by the Senate, he did need domestic support, and so he wound up taking a tougher stand. So, the two are absolutely intertwined, but the fear was not something that was manipulated um, uh, um, by, by these policymakers. They felt real fear. Um, and at the same time, they also knew that their adversaries could take advantage of it. So, there's a, an interplay here. That's my point, but I think it's mostly a reinforcing factor rather than the, the real source. On, on the Soviet side, I mean, fear was there all the time. It's so palpable at the end of the Cold War. One of the most, you know, interesting things you can find in terms of the connections between 1945 and the end, and, 19, and literally the end of the Cold War, 1990, are the discussions inside the Kremlin about allowing a unified Germany inside NATO Um, And it gets back to John's question a minute minute ago. Were were these fears of Germany justified? Well, what's so amazing is how fearful Gorbachev and Shevardnadze remain in 1990 about the potential of a reunited Germany, let alone a reunited Germany, you know, inside NATO. Um, They're also, Gorbachev is also incredibly worried about the fact that if he agrees to this, his domestic adversaries, who are growing in numbers by leaps and bounds in 1990, are going to exploit this because there was tremendous domestic opposition to Gorbachev's making this concession. But he does do it. He overcomes those fears. He overcomes his own domestic political opposition in order to accomplish some larger purposes, which which I talk about in, in the book. So getting those variables right between a real sense of fear and the do- domestic political context is an important part of the task of any historian or political scientist trying to sort these things out. And I think ultimately that's why I argue the case for weaving a tapestry, for seeing the interconnections between these things, not trying to isolate out variables as so many of us often do. Uh, yeah, sure, yeah. Um, because of the... uh, I'd say two two or three reasons. One is the ongoing destabilization in the third world that created tremendous sense of fear and opportunity. And what's so interesting, though, is that that matrix of fear and opportunity is beginning to change. And, you know, ultimately detente is shattered at the end of the 1970s by by, um, Brezhnev and the Soviet decision to intervene in Afghanistan. As I show with fantastic evidence, that's not because the Soviets think they're exploiting an opportunity. (laughs) The Soviets are extraordinarily fearful of the vulnerability that they're sensing Um, is emerging inside Afghanistan. That is to say that the Americans just thrown out of Iran are going to take advantage of the upheaval now going on in Afghanistan and relocate inside Afghanistan. So this constant turmoil in Africa and in Southwest Asia as well as in Southeast Asia um, creates this dynamic of fear and opportunity that that sustains uh, the, the Cold War. The other, the other thing is the domestic politics broadly defined in, bo- in, in both countries. In the United States there's growing political opposition to detente uh, on the American right and even amongst many conservative Democrats and Carter's loss of domestic support is a, is a key variable in making him drag out the whole SALT negotiation that is an important part of, uh, of this factor here. And inside the Soviet Union, as I said, um, Brezhnev is increasingly, uh, has really lost control over policy making, uh, both to party ideologues and to military officers who are more or less shaping policy in places in the third world that the Americans have decided, for reasons that are incredible, you know, are, are of vital importance. So you know, as I said in the lecture, Brezhnev has no interest whatsoever in the Horn of Africa in supporting Ethiopia and, and, and things of that sort. Um, yet he gets, drag, he gets dragged into it and it has a lot to do with the complexities of, of, of politics broadly defined inside the Kremlin. When a Soviet leader is unable, as he was because of his physical ailments in the, in the mid and late 1970s, to really shape policy. You know, alternatively, Gorbachev, who's at You know, so vigorous, is able to do incredible things between 1985 and 1988 and 89 because he has such great control. Over the process of decision making, it's both uh, the respect he commands, the ingrained patterns of deference, and his incredible astuteness in, in 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 moving people around. Then, of course, the whole thing begins to fall apart. But for three or four years, he's a, you know he's able to control that machinery in in remarkable ways. Sure, yeah. Well, I, I, I okay. yeah, sure. You mentioned um, the thing about Germany. Um, you know, the situation on the ground... Has yeah well i i i think i think the issues um you know that you raise are, are ones that um you know re- require a lot of discussion i mean clearly the soviets as i point out and emphasize in my book the cold war continues for four decades because the soviets uh are perceived to be aggressive and are in fact aggressive at at various moments in time. However, I mean anyone looking, and I really say this categorically, anyone looking at the record of Gorbachev could not help but come to the conclusion that overall he demonstrates remarkable self-restraint in the exercise of military power. Yes, you can find a few instances here or there um, where he momentarily um, moves tanks in, and, 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 and not only in the Balkans, but also in, in Georgia. But there, it's, it's momentary. Um, for the most part, as both historians and international relations scholars you know, write about, but the, the thing about Gorbachev is how to explain his remarkable self-restraint that's the that, that that's the challenge for ir scholars and for and for historians it's not to emphasize his aggressiveness uh, but to uh, but to really grapple with the with the reasons why he would exercise such tremendous s- self restraint of course you're right i mean a key uh, the other part of course is to understand this is that there's a remarkable build up of um, you know of, of popular discontent Um, in Central Europe, and Eastern Europe, with with Soviet rule. Um, That's that's absolutely right. Um, But once again, that discontent with Soviet rule is not something new in 1986 or 87 or 88. The analytic question is why in 1989 does Gorbachev not intervene, Um, whereas you know, in, you know, in 1956 and 1953 and 1968 and indirectly in 1980, um, the Soviets did inter- intervene. Why not? And I, get, I, I tackle that by trying to show both the significant changes in Gorbachev's ideological thinking, but also, very importantly, equally importantly, showing how he has a transformed conception of the basic requirements of Soviet security. And a lot of it relates to the fact that he is really a believer in minimal deterrence. And he doesn't believe anybody is going to attack the Soviet Union anymore. He says that. He says that to his advisors. No one's going to attack us. Why do we need all these military capabilities? And what's what's significant about this is not that he says that. Because what's interesting is all through the Cold War, Soviet leaders often said, hey, we have these tremendous military capabilities. No one's going to attack us. But they didn't do anything about it. They just built more capabilities. What's so significant about Gorbachev was that he believed it and he acted upon it. He acted upon it. He began to tamp down the arms race and made these remarkable concessions, not immediately, Not immediately, but by 1987 and 88 and certainly 89, he's doing things that no one would ever have believed a Soviet leader would do, and many of them he's doing unilaterally. And to understand that, you need to look at ideology, you need to look at strategic uh, uh, factors, and most of all, in my book, I write that you need to understand what Gorbachev is trying to do domestically, and that is reshape the nature of Soviet communism. Not abandon it because he's a firm believer in the superiority of communism. He says it again and again and again, but it's to make it work better. But he fails to do that. Yeah. been talking about how memories uh, shape ideologies and how leaders have been stuck so many years, right, because of these memories. Then all of a sudden, we have this, uh, this kind of super. It's not. It, 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 I mean, your question. You, uh, do you want to finish? Doesn't your, your question? Your question is great, and your question will command the attention of Soviet specialists and Cold War historians for decades and decades and decades to come because understanding Gorbachev is really going to be difficult. But one answer to your question is that you know he's not a total aberration. I mean you know he's he's part of a generational movement. He's part of the you know uh, of the people you know of the younger generation um, who essentially came to maturity in the post-Stalin period, who believed fervently in the superiority of communism um, and the greatness uh, of the Soviet Union, especially having defeated uh, Nazi Germany, but who also wanted to make the system work better. They're Khrushchev's generation, the people who believed in reform. The, you know, Robert English, in his book, you know, Russia and the West, you know, describes this in great detail. Gorbachev's not alone by any means. There's a generation there. Um, Many of these, what's important about Gorbachev is he's part of that generation but exactly what he believes is clearly unknown to lots of the people around him and I would suggest what he believes is also not clear in his own mind. I mean, I think those of us who have tried to to analyze um, Gorbachev's steps you know, from 1985 to 86 to 87, 88. We, I think all of us, have come to feel, you know, there's a a remarkable amount of improvisation here. It's not that he had a plan laid out. What he wanted to do was pretty simple, and he says it. We have the, the, the record at the first Politburo meeting. We need to concentrate on domestic policy. He tells the rest of the Politburo, let's not focus on foreign policy. I really, we need to get our domestic house in order. What that means, of course, is vague, and it r- will remain vague for the entire period that, that he's General Secretary. He never knows what he wants to do, but he knows what he, but he doesn't know how to do it, but he knows what he wants to accomplish. And what happens is that as as that preoccupation with reconfiguring sort of the domestic economic system becomes so salient, he starts seeing foreign policy as a vehicle to those ends. And it's there's a dynamic there's a dynamic that that grows um, o- over time. And um, He's not alone. There are people who support who support this. In fact, people who study the Soviet decision-making far more intensively than I, they'll all say to you the remarkable thing is that during 1986 and 87 and into 88, most people in the Politburo actually supported Gorbachev. You know, they didn't, you know, they thought that he was really trying to strengthen the system and not totally reshape the system. Um, and actually, that might have been a correct perception. You know, we don't really know. But clearly, during that process, he begins to, to rethink. And I, I, I write and suggest in my book, and I think Vlad Zubak would agree with this, part of what really shapes Gorbachev during this period is the legitimization he achieves in the West as he goes through this process. He finds such psychological reinforcement. So much support and nurturing from foreign leaders that, you know, he sort of gets co-opted into the process. I mean, you know, I write in my book by, you know, 1989 when he goes to Washington in 1989, the great irony is that he has more friends in the White House than he has in the Kremlin. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And, And I think it's that dynamic that he, you know, that he's realizing that, you know, he's honored, indeed celebrated abroad. Think of what it means, you know, he goes to, where Where does he go? He goes to Paris, he, you know, he goes to, to, to London, wherever he goes. You look at the documentaries. There are these tremendous crowds everywhere. You know, Gorbachev is a hero. Just think of what that means to him psychologically. Does Does he come back to Moscow and think, hey, I want to step back from these things? What's interesting, though, is that he often comes back to Moscow, for example, after each of his negotiations with Ronald Reagan in Geneva and Reykjavik uh, and in Washington. At the first Politburo meeting each time, he says to his comrades on the Politburo, Reagan, he's a devil. He's so hard to negotiate with, you know, and things of that sort And in part, it seems... I mean, some of us who have studied this sort of, you know, are taken aback by this because there's this dichotomy. On the one hand, we know that he's really impressed by by Reagan. On the other hand, he, you know, and he says it to some of his closest advisors. But at the, you know, at the Politburo meetings, he's almost always ridiculing. And he says, Reagan's trying to squeeze us. You know, the only way to deal with him is to be tough. But on the other hand, you can have this sense of this man who's so respected in the West, wherever he goes, not just in Washington, that it's sort of inspiring him to move forward. So, you know, I think understanding sort of the psychological political dynamic is really important is really important here. But but the significance of personality, the significance of human agency in ending the Cold War, I think sort of has reshaped a lot of my, th- I mean it, it means you really need to think about leaders in a serious way. It's not that leaders can overcome everything, but leaders make a difference. Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev really made a difference. I think we, we might be able to squeeze in one more question. I know it's, it's getting late and some people have 1:30 classes. Let me just mention, before I forget to any of the, any of the graduate <coughs> students here in, in history, or international relations, that there'll be an informal seminar in this room at 3:30 that Professor Leffler will conduct. Um, so you're, you're you're all welcome uh, to attend that. Uh, it's primarily for graduate students, a few plat- faculty can float in if they would like. Um, let's and let's try and take one more question. And I think Mel will stay around and talk to you individually. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, about one from this side. Okay. Um, yeah. um really good question it 's one that I wrestle, wrestled with and, and still um, wrestle with. I think the building of strength by the United States, broadly defined, probably was an important and to a degree positive backdrop to understand what Gorbachev decided to do but in many specifics, I think SDI was actually <coughs> retarded the end of the Cold War. I think that the best evidence that we have suggests not that Gorbachev ignored SDI. in fact, if anything, the opposite. he was. Incredibly preoccupied with SDI. But mostly, SDI complicated what he wanted to do for two reasons. One, it made him uncertain about whether he could really trust Reagan and the United States, whether he could really enter, whether he really should enter into these arms negotiation agreements, or whether the Americans would simply squeeze him in the future. It tore him apart. He clearly is beleaguered, but two, and probably more important, is that SDI gave ammunition to his adversaries. Um, and I think it made it more difficult for him to do what he, want, what he wanted to do, and that is to negotiate these agreements and tamp down the arms race, primarily so he could re- shift resources from military to domestic priorities. So, um, and I would say also, I mean, you know, briefly stated. Um, although there's a difference amongst those of us who who study the policy in Afghanistan, and I think Afghanistan writ large is the, the third world. Uh, in 1985, 86, 87, I think the American the American assistance to the Mujahideen actually, um, once again made it much more difficult to do what Gorbachev wanted to do from the very beginning, and that was to get Soviet troops out. But he wanted to get Soviet troops out without humiliation. Um, and, um, and anyone reading the Politburo meetings, which are pretty much available now, and Chernyev's diary uh, uh, relating to Soviet decision-making on Afghanistan, will see that the dynamics of decision-making in Soviet policy-making circles regarding Afghanistan between 1985 and 1988 or 89 is so similar, remarkably similar to American decision-making regarding Vietnam between 1968 and 1974. That is to say the sense of this war is a waste. It makes absolutely no sense. We want to get our troops home, but we don't want to be made to look foolish. We don't want to be humiliated by it. What's interesting—I mean, it was interesting to me—was that you know the guy who we often think of as the sort of most uh, accommodating in the uh, um, in, in the Soviet Politburo, Shevardnadze, um was probably the strongest opponent to rapid withdrawal from Afghanistan. Opponent! And why? Because he felt that it would discredit the Soviet Union every, everywhere in the Third World. And you know, there are these statements in the Politburo almost precisely echoing what was said in, in, in Washington in 1969. Our allies will lose confidence, uh, our credibility will be shattered. You know, things of that sort. So I think in short, that, um, the, that, that the backdrop of strength was important. And I, I don't want to discount it because it, 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 meant, it, it reinforced the need to sort of take initiatives to, to, um, to shift priorities to, 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 to the domestic scene. But for the most part, I think it, since Gorbachev wanted to do these things for domestic reasons in any case, it actually made it more difficult for him. So, you know, that's how I'd a- answer your, your very, very good question that a lot of people, you know, are arguing over today and will argue for, for many, many years. Thank you. Thanks. Thank okay. you.